What would you do if God told you very clearly that he was about to execute a severe judgment on the city in which you were now living? And what if you had just taken out a really big home equity loan and you had invested it in upgrades to your house and you finally had your your house the way you had always wanted it to be? And all your family and friends lived in that same city with you. Would you hope that God might be bluffing or at least fudging a little on the timeline so you could just stay where you were for a while, where it was predictable and comfortable and you had sorted things out and you knew how to go about your daily life? What if God then also told you that there was another place, a real place that you knew about, that you had actually been before, and he said that he was going to come and set up his permanent residence in that place. A place that he promised would overflow with every kind of abundant provision. A place that he said would be perfectly secure from all harm. How long would it take you to pack up and leave this place to go to that one? Beloved, if you belong to Jesus Christ, your eternal citizenship isn't here. It's there. We can't go there physically just yet, and he's not there physically just yet. But the day is coming when we will leave behind everything associated with this cursed and wretched world, and we will go to that place, and he will dwell in our midst and we will be his people, and he will be our God. That is one of the key themes of the Bible from start to finish. God's people dwelling in the place of his choosing with him in their midst. This is the third of eight visions presented in the first six chapters in Zechariah that Zechariah received from the Lord. Now, who are the players in this vision. I use the word players not to trivialize, but I use it because I can't talk about people because in these visions pretty much the only human being is Zechariah. Everybody else is a divine or a supernatural being. First, Zechariah refers to a man with a measuring line in his hand. He looks like a man, but he's an angel. Then is the angel, Zechariah says, who was speaking with me. Now, That's Zechariah's angelic tour guide. He was introduced in the first vision. And then finally, there is one who is called another angel or messenger who was coming out to meet that tour guide angel. And this other angel or messenger tells the tour guide what he is to pass along to Zechariah. Now, I'll say right up front that I believe that this other angel, this other messenger, is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. I believe he's the one who was introduced in the first vision as the angel of Yahweh. And if you study, I've said before, if you study that phrase in the Old Testament, I believe you'll see compellingly that the angel of Yahweh is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And he shows up in many different scenarios and events in the Old Testament. 
Now there are three key promises in this vision. The promise of the place, the promise of the proof, and the promise of the presence. When I say the proof, I'm just trying to stick with my alliteration. What I mean there is the promise of vindication. First, the promise of the place. As this third vision begins, the angelic beings who are showing these things to Zechariah draw his focus to the place to which God is going to return to dwell in the midst of his people. Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line in his hand. When Zechariah asks him where he's going, he says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 38 to 40, the same motif of the measuring line appears. And in that passage, in fact, throughout chapters 30 and 31, God is talking about the new covenant that he will establish with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the place that's being measured is the place to which he is going to bring his people so that he may dwell in their midst. And the place in Jeremiah 31 is the same as it is in Zechariah. It is Jerusalem. I strongly uh, recommend that you read Jeremiah 30 and 30, 30 and 31. You'll get a more detailed picture of what this vision is about. Now, the first thing I want to note about the vision of the measuring line is that the place to which God is going to return is a real place. It's a place that can be measured. It's a physical place on earth. And it's a place that was known to the original audience to whom Zechariah delivered his account of these visions because they were standing in that place when they received these words from God. It's the place they know as Jerusalem. So first, it's a real place. Secondly, it's a secure place. And it's a prosperous place. I'll take those two at the same time because the verses that deal with those two points are the same verses. Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah 2 verse 4, Jeremiah, <laughs> Jerusalem, excuse me, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle in her midst. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. The point in verse 4 is that the city will be bursting at the seams with people who are coming and going into and out of the city. And there will be an abundance of provision. And they won't have to worry about the fact that the gates are wide open. The, many of the translations say city inhabited without walls. The word walls isn't actually in the original. It is the, the, the word means a rural village. It's something like a rural village. And the idea is... There'll be so many people coming into and out of the city, it will be as accessible as a, as a village that's out in the open countryside. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11, talking about the same city, the redeemed Jerusalem, says, verse 11, Your gates will be continually open. They will not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of of the nations with their kings led in procession. It's a great picture. So it'll be a place of, of security. Won't need it won't need fortifications. And it'll be a place of provision. 
God will be the wall of fire around the city and he will be the glory in her midst. Now, if you consider the recent history of this group of exiles returned from Media Persia, this was really good news. Because <laughs> they had spent 70 years in exile and they had spent 18 years being so hassled by the people of the land that they'd never got past laying the foundation of the temple. And God is saying, you're going to be in a place that is secure and in which abundant, uh, there's abundant, abundant provision. This sounds really good to me too, if you consider the way this plays out in Scripture, and we'll talk a lot about that as we proceed. God promises right now in our lives to work everything together for good to us who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Even the things that are exceedingly hurtful and painful. But he doesn't yet promise that there will be no hurt or pain. In fact, in Romans chapter 8 where it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. (laughs) What are the things that it says can't separate us? Persecution, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Those are pretty painful things. But, beloved, the day is coming when he will put us in a place in which there is absolutely no threat, no harm. And that's a beautiful hope that we have. And there will be no harm because he will be there. And he will be the wall of fire around that place. The promise of a place in which there is rock-solid security and superabundant provision sounds pretty attractive to me. It sounds kind of like the Garden of Eden, and it should. It will be a real place. It will be a secure place. It will be a prosperous place because it will be God's place. He will be the glory in her midst. The first promise is the promise of the place. The second promise in this vision is the promise of the proof, the vindication of God and of God's people in verses 6 through 9. God will vindicate and avenge His people against those who have harshly and violently oppressed them and gone way beyond the assignment that God had given them to act as his instruments of judgment against his people. With this promise of vindication or avenging comes a call to separate. A call to God's people to flee from the place to which he had temporarily sent them in exile. He told them to stay there. He told them to build houses there. He told them to submit to the the governing authorities there. Now he says, come out, flee from that place. And he says, escape from that place. In these four verses, God tells the Judahites, flee from the land of the north, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. The group of people who originally received these writings, the exiles gathered in Jerusalem, was only part of of all of the exiles that had been taken away into captivity. A great many of those exiles had not yet come back from Media Persia. Why? Because they had gotten comfortable. 
See, they had been given the same decree by King Cyrus that authorized them to go back to the land, but they hadn't come back. They had built their houses. They had taken out their home equity loans. They had made things the way they wanted them, and they were comfortable. And so they were not real keen on the idea of getting out of that place and going back to Jerusalem. It didn't even have walls yet. And historically, it had been the focal point of one siege after another. Right? God is saying there is no security there because I'm about to judge that land. And so he tells them to escape. And the reason for his appeal is is that he is going to execute a severe judgment against the nations that plundered his people. And when he does, he wants them to be out of the way. And we must not miss the forcefulness of the imperatives in verses 6 and 7. Flee from the land of the north. Escape from living with the daughter of Babylon. There's a word that happens that shows up three times here, and it's the word ho. Ho, ho, ho. And it is not Mary, and it is not jovial, and it's not talking about Santa Claus. It is a word in the Hebrew that is used over and over in the prophets that means be warned. It means beware. Something very threatening is about to happen. Twice at the beginning of verse 6, beware, beware, flee from the land of the north. And again, once at the beginning of verse 7, beware, Zion, escape. And the imperative escape in verse 7 is the exact same command that the angels gave to Lot and his family as they were grabbing them by the arms to pull them out of the city of Sodom that they were not anxious to leave before God rained down fire on that city and reduced it to ashes. Here in Zechariah, before God explains the danger that's coming to that land, He reminds Judah of the danger that already came, the one they knew about very well. He said, For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens. In effect, I believe God is saying, Jerusalemites, remember what I did to you when you persisted in rebellion against me? That was worse than anything you had ever seen before. You know what my hand of judgment looks like. Well, now I'm about to pour out my judgment on the nations into which I scattered you. So you need to not be there anymore. And then he reveals his intention toward those nations. And once again, it is his jealousy for his people that is in focus. In verses 8 and 9, God declares he's going to hand the nations that plundered Judah over to those whom they had enslaved, and they will be plunder for their slaves. That's what we call reaping what you have sown. It's what uh, it's what known as talionic justice, judgment in kind. And the one who is speaking to Zechariah declares to the citizens of Zion his reason for this coming judgment against their oppressors. He says, For he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. And the word translated apple here is a word that is tied to 
the idea of opening or gate. What is the gate of the eye? What's the gateway of the eye? It's the pupil. What God is saying is whoever brings harm to you, people of Zion, might as well be trying to put out my own eye. That's how valuable you are to me. And this ties right back to what God said in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He said, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry with my people, (laughs) they furthered the disaster. If you look back, uh, get a Bible encyclopedia and look at, at pictures of the art artwork that's found on pieces of pottery and stone from that era one of the one of the most common images that you'll find is these these drawings of judahites with hooks under their chins and the hooks are suspended to poles and they're being carted like fish out of judah to the land of their captivity that's just one little example of the kind of excess the kind of brutality that Nebuchadnezzar's Chaldean mercenary army inflicted on the inhabitants of Judah. They did far more than they had to do. They furthered the disaster. And now God was going to bring that back on their head. It is not smart to attempt to poke the Lord of armies in the eye. Because when he sets out to vindicate himself, And to avenge his people, there's nowhere to hide. If God's jealous love for us as his people results in painful judgment for us, when we are unfaithful, consider what that same jealous, fierce love for God's people will result in for those who oppress us. Read 2 Thessalonians 1. What makes hell hellacious is that people are separated from the presence of God and from the glory of His power forever. And in that chapter, it says that the reason God is going to do that to the people who have rejected Him is because they have afflicted His people. God will avenge Himself. It is not wrong for us as believers to long for the day when God will avenge Himself on those who have harshly oppressed us. King David prayed for that very work of God against his enemies. Our brother Philip Johnson read Psalm 35 this morning. That's what that psalm is about. Psalm 56, the same thing, and many other psalms. But we must not forget that God is at work even in the nations and people who oppress the people of God to draw some of them to himself. In fact, right here in Zechariah 2.11, it says, when the day comes that God dwells in the midst of his people, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. There is, a, there is an astounding passage in Isaiah 11. It just blows my mind every time I look at it. It begins as an oracle of God's judgment against Egypt. He says he's going to bring Assyria against Egypt. Both of those nations oppressed Israel. 
But at the end of the chapter, there's this incredible turn of events and God declares that a day is coming when Yahweh will make Himself known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. Isaiah 19.21 And then He says, in that day there's going to be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Egyptians will go to Assyria and worship and Assyrians will go to Egypt to worship and they will be worshiping Yahweh, the true God. Verse 24, Isaiah 19 says, In that day, this is great, In that day Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts is blessed, saying, get this, Blessed is my people Egypt and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Is that beautiful? Is that gracious? May we never lose sight of God's intention to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and to do so through us. Our vindication is God's problem. And He'll see to it that that vindication is done as He knows to be just and righteous. Seeking and saving the lost is our assignment as the redeemed agents of God and as the body of Christ on earth. Zechariah covers both those bases. God covers both those bases in one vision to Zechariah. Now before we move on to the third promise in this great vision, I want to look a little bit more closely at God's command of the Judahites to flee from, to escape from the place of their captivity that he's about to judge and the command for them to come to the place which he declared to which he declared he was going to come to dwell in their midst. God's judgments against the the nations that oppressed Israel in that day, in that time, were severe. And they will be more severe when things play out in the latter days. His judgments against those nations in those days were just the tip of the iceberg. This cursed world and everything that is associated with it and everyone whose citizenship remains in it. All of it is being prepared for a coming judgment that will make all of God's previous judgments pale by comparison except for one. And that was His judgment against His own Son to pay the debt of our sin. And the one who paid that debt is coming back. And when He does... He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation 19.15 Isaiah 49 talks about that same winepress and it says, God says, After I deliver your sons from captivity, I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I Yahweh am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's vindication. That's what's coming. That's the destiny of everything that you see around you in this godless world and culture. We, as God's redeemed, are called to flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to the one from whom that wrath is coming. That's what the righteous fear of God always does. Because it's a fear that attracts 
to the only one who is worthy of fear. We are of the light, and the light has no fellowship with the darkness. We have to be in this world for a time so that God can use us to advance his kingdom, to populate his coming kingdom. But we are not of this world. It won't do us any good to pack up and move to Jerusalem today because he's not there yet, physically, as he will be in the new redeemed Jerusalem. But you and I are called right now to come out and to be separate, to flee from, to escape from all of the enticements that this wicked and corrupt world has to offer and to cling to the surpassingly superior affection of the one who is coming, God our Savior. We are to set our eyes on him and we're to set our eyes on everything that has to do with the place in which he will dwell in our midst. In Psalm 101, verses 2 and 3, David says, I will give heed to the blameless way. And then he says, Lord, when will you come to me? And then he says, I will walk in my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Remember the central exhortation of this book that we saw in chapter 1, verse 3? God says to his people, Return to me, that I may return to you. That's what David's talking about in this psalm. Turning our hearts away from the wicked and cursed things of this world and turning them steadfastly to our God who is going to come back. I don't know about you, but I have set far too many worthless things before my eyes. Things that are, that are connected entirely with the kingdom of this world and not at all with the kingdom of our Savior. This kingdom is destined for judgment. Why do we want to hang on to it? Why do we want to invest in it? Why do we want to build anything in it that we see as provision or security? It makes no sense. We act sometimes as if we believe there is genuine pleasure and fulfillment in those things when there is none. The pleasure for which we were created and recreated is God. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand There are pleasures forever, Psalm 16. His dwelling place, his kingdom, that's where we'll find every good thing. And that's the only place where we'll find every good thing. And so as Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else you need will be added to you for now. In the last four verses of this marvelous passage, God turns his attention directly to the citizens of Zion and to the promise that he will return to dwell in their midst. This is an amazing passage. And by the way, we're going to talk more about these four verses next week. And I'll just give you a little preview. Next week, I'm going to try it as well as I can in one message to talk some and explain my understanding of how a lot of these prophecies are going to play out. There are several prominent views of of how that's going to happen. And I respect brothers and sisters who hold each of those views. 
And I'm going to point you to some great resources that, that have to do with diving in and finding out how those are, are explained and defended from Scripture. But next week, I'm going to tell you mine. And then that, I hope, will help uh, kind of give you a, a foundation for how we will proceed through the rest of this book. These four verses talk about God's amazingly gracious intention to bless his people in the greatest way that any people can ever be blessed (laughs) by dwelling in their midst. That is the central promise of the whole book of Zechariah, the promise of God's midst in the presence of his people in the place of his choosing. And if you'll forgive the shameless alliteration, the point of the place is the presence of the person. There's a little word that shows up four times in this, in this vision with strategic significance, and it's the word midst, M-I-D-S-T. It means the center. It means the thick middle of something. In verses 4 and 5, it says, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle in the midst of her. That's the literal translation. And then it says, For I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. Verse 10, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in the midst of you. Verse 11, Then I will dwell in the midst of you, and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. See, what God is saying is, I'm preparing a place. You heard those words before? I'm preparing a place, and in that place, you will be right in the middle of the city, and I will be right in the middle of the city with you. (laughs) What a great image. And where will that place be? Well, the text says explicitly. What was it that the angel was measuring? It's Jerusalem. The near-term fulfillment of that promise occurred when the Shekinah glory of God once again came to inhabit the Holy of Holies in the temple that was rebuilt by the hands of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the returned exiles from Persia. That temple was completed in 515 B.C. But the ultimate long-term fulfillment of this promise will come about after God has judged this world when he has redeemed all of his creation, when the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, and when the physical temple has been replaced by the physical presence of God in the midst of his people. In the New Jerusalem, it will be as it was when God walked in the cool of the garden, in the, in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam, before our sin brought corruption into his creation because he's going to undo the curse. That's the fulfillment to which these promises are pointing. The people of Zechariah's day didn't get to see that fulfillment, all of it. You know when they'll get to see it? They'll get to see it when we see it. We'll revisit again this passage next week and we'll talk more about that fulfillment that we're all, all of the saints of every age are looking forward to that fulfillment. But I want to look at one more thing in this passage before we wrap up this morning. And that is who it is that Yahweh is sending. 
There is a critical outcome that's presented twice in this vision. Something that Judah will come to know when they see these promises fulfilled. Zechariah 2 verse 8, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. And then verse 9, Behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Verse 10, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Who is me? Who's talking here? This same declaration, then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me, shows up two more times in this book in chapter 4 verse 9 and chapter 6 verse 15. That's four times. Now from what I can tell by looking at the commentaries, the most common interpretation of who the me is, is that it's Zechariah. The one acting as God's mouthpiece for passing along all of these proclamations to God's people. Now that's understandable at one level because in the narrative of visions in the Old Testament, sometimes the subject, the one who's speaking, kind of bounces around a little bit and you have to look carefully to see those transitions. And it would certainly be, it would, it would make logical sense for Zechariah to assert that when the prophecies that he's passing along to the people come to pass, they'll know that he was sent by Yahweh, that he's the real deal. You know, by the way, what batting average did a prophet of God have to have? Yeah, he had to have about a thousand. If he missed, you took him outside the camp and stoned him to death. So it wasn't, it wasn't a vocation that many people would have, you know, chosen willingly. <laughs> but you had to say what God said and nothing else. But I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's what's being asserted here at all. And I believe it's very, very important to this chapter and to the whole book of Zechariah that we get this right. It would be highly unusual. In fact, from what I've been able to discern looking through the prophets, it would be without precedent for a prophet of God to make statements regarding his own vindication when he's talking to the people of God on God's behalf. The prophets didn't say, when this stuff happens, I get to say, I told you so. They don't say, when all that I have revealed from God comes to pass, then you'll know that I'm the real deal. They don't say that. They say, then you'll know that God is the real deal. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses was about to go to the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, and he had to tell them on Yahweh's behalf that God had sent him to do a bunch of miracles and draw them out of Egypt, free them, right, from Egypt. And so Moses asked God, what to do if the Israelites didn't believe that Yahweh had actually appeared to him and commanded him to embark on this mission? And so God gave him some miracles to perform for Israel. But when Moses spoke as God's prophet first to Israel and then to Pharaoh, it was not about his credentials. It was okay for him to talk to God about his vindication, but that wasn't the topic of the conversation when he was talking on God's behalf. There are two instances in Ezekiel, one in chapter 2, one in chapter 33, in which God says to Ezekiel, the people I'm sending you to, my people, they're stubborn and rebellious and they're not going to listen to you. But that's okay. 
Because when the things that I've told you to tell them come to pass, they will know that a prophet was in their midst. See, it's fine for God to declare that he's going to vindicate his prophet. But when Ezekiel then proclaims the prophecies to the people, that's not what he's talking about. Now, I know I'm going into a lot of detail here, but again, I believe it's very important. When God's prophets spoke to God's people on God's behalf, they focused not on what the unfolding of his promises and warnings would prove about them. They focused on what the unfolding of his promises and warnings would prove about him. And that's a good lesson for preachers today. The phrase, you will know or they will know, occurs over 80 times in the Old Testament. And the most interesting thing that I observed about look, in looking through those 80-plus instances is that almost every one of them has to do with God making himself known to his people and to the nations that surrounded his people. And the most common form of that statement is, then you will know that I am Now, you might consider this next connection to be a reach, but I don't at all. Twice in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus talks about God the Father proving to the world something that his disciples already knew. And that is that God the Father had sent God the Son. He says twice that when the world sees the unity God, Father, when the world sees the unity that you and I have had from all eternity and they see that these whom you've given to me had that same unity with me and with each other, they will know that you sent me. And he says that twice. And then in the end he says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee. And these, my disciples, have known that you sent me. I believe that all four times in the book of Zechariah that a person in a vision says, you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me, that person is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is the one who will execute vengeance against those who plundered God's people. He is the one who will return to dwell in the midst of God's people. He is Yahweh, and he is the one sent from Yahweh. There's no contradiction in those statements whatsoever. If you believe in a triune God, there's simply no contradiction. So why would we try to sort it out in some way that required us to shuffle things around in the text? It's right there, and it's powerful, and it's important, because the rest of this book is going to talk over and over about the one that God is going to send, the one that he will call my shepherd, the one he will call my associate, the one upon whom his people will look with grief and realize that it's their sin that caused him to be pierced. Now, I'm not saying that Zechariah's original audience sorted all of that out. But you and I have the fullness of God's revelation concerning his son. So we get the distinct advantage of seeing many, many things that are presented in the Old Testament prophets with much greater clarity than the the original audience got to have. Why would we want to put that aside? Why would we want to set that clarity aside? Okay, so what? (laughs) Why does all of this matter? 
It matters because these are the promises that define our whole worldview. These things mattered very much to the returned exiles of Judah because they assured them that better things were coming. These promises assured them that God was going to bless their efforts to rebuild the temple. The one whose glory had departed from the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple in Ezekiel chapter 10 was coming back. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was going to dwell once again in the midst of his people. And those promises made the long and painful wait worth it for the Judahites. And the ultimate fulfillment of those promises makes the long and painful wait for us worth it. These promises made the opposition of godless men against the people of God bearable because the outcome was already determined. God was going to prosper them. He was going to protect them. He was going to avenge them. Every injustice was going to be set right. And that gave his people genuine hope. It gave them hope that sustained them as they went on about doing the things that God had instructed them to do. And that's what the assurance of the ultimate fulfillment of these promises does for us. (laughs) At the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, after talking about God, about Christ returning and taking up his own people to be with him forever, first those who have who've fallen asleep in the Lord and then those who are still alive. At the end, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about the promise that we will be resurrected because He was resurrected, that which was sown in dishonor will be raised in honor, that which was sown mortal will be raised in immortality, death will have no sting, it will have been conquered entirely. It concludes, Paul concludes by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, it's important that we know where things are headed. It's important because it tells us how to live now. The ultimate fulfillment of these promises is still coming. The Judahites who got these promises first, all they got was a peak. All they got was a preview. They did not get to see Jerusalem redeemed and restored to all the prosperity and security and glory that's promised here. They didn't get to see the nations bringing their wealth and their kings into this city as a tribute to the king of kings, the one on the, on the throne of David, the one who would be the culmination of the promises of the Davidic covenant. But the true saints of God from that generation will get to see all of those things one day. And you know when they'll get to see them? They'll get to see them when we get to see them. Their hope is our hope. And that hope tells us how to live right here, right now, as redeemed citizens of the kingdom and of the city of God looking for and setting the stage for the return of our King in glory to dwell in our midst. And the single most critical bit of stage setting that we do while we are still here is to return to Him. It is to turn our hearts fully and without reservation to Him. To turn away from the things of this godless and corrupt world. To leave them behind. To flee from them and to run toward Him. 
until we stand in that beautiful redeemed place in the presence of that person, beloved, let's flee. Let's flee decisively. Let's turn all of our attention, all of our affection without distraction on our glorious king and his marvelous kingdom. And you know what? Let's do it together. I'll hit you with one more round of shameless alliteration. I said the point of the place is the presence of the person. The portion of the people is the presence of the person. The word portion in the Old Testament means the inheritance. Our treasured inheritance is God. And his treasured inheritance, by his own declaration, is us. So let's take each other by the hand and let's run toward him and let's keep running in his direction until the day that we stand in his presence. Loving Father, we long for that day. We know that you are in us and with us even now. Your spirit has come to dwell in us. We have amazing, amazing assurance from you that it is well with our souls. And we cling to you. We find in you all of our good, all of our pleasure. But Father, we know that your promises are not yet entirely fulfilled. And we look for that day, that glorious day, when we will dwell in the place of your choosing with you in the midst of us. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.